Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 209. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, joined by a longtime friend and training partner, Sheena Osborne. Sheena, how are you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? I am also doing pretty good. It's a nice weekend here. We're getting into the winter. It's getting a little bit chilly, but hey, I'm looking forward to the holidays. Actually, I'm glad to finally have you on the podcast. We've been talking about this for a while. And one of the cool things about about you as a guest is we actually know each other in real life. (laughs) Yeah, we sure do. (laughs) It's been a long time coming and I'm super happy to be here. Amazing. Well, uh, for those who don't know, Sheena is a a black belt under the same lineage as me, but I'll let you do the talking, Sheena. Why don't you give yourself a quick introduction and just let everyone know who you are? Oh, man, sure. So my name is Sheena Osborne. Like you know now, I do train with Steve. I've been actually training for a fair while now. It's hard to believe it's actually my 18th year on the mats, like long enough that my first jujitsu instructional was a VHS tape. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, no joke. Um, I feel like I'm watching the jujitsu revolution, though. I went from being this, you know, underground thing to having a gym on every single corner. It's just unbelievable. It really is crazy how much it has changed over the years. I mean, we've talked about that here on the podcast, but yeah, it doesn't feel that long ago that I remember our instructor coming in and being like, X guard. This is a revolutionary new concept that no one (laughs) knows about. Now it's considered a fundamental. Like, I don't know what's going on anymore. Yeah, it's not the same sport anymore. This is unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But, you know, for me, jujitsu has been very much recreational. I did compete a little at the start of my journey, but there weren't very many women to compete with. So the handful of competitions I did initially were actually against men who had like 20 or so pounds on me. So it was, it was quite the experience. Yeah, I do have experience as a competitive athlete, though, that I'm hoping to draw for our conversation today, as well as some professional experience. I actually used to compete in rock climbing, yeah, in like the early 2000s and late 2000s, and was on the Canadian national climbing team and coached competitive athletes as well in climbing too. So although I'm recreational in jiu-jitsu, I do have a competitive athletic background, and some of my professional experiences hopefully dovetail into what we're talking about today. Yeah, your professional experience is the thing that I is has always been super fascinating to me. And admittedly, despite the fact that you tell me a little bit about it here and there when we train, I actually don't know much about it, except that it sounds like the hardest job on earth. <laughs> I think <laughs> I don't think I would last a day in this job, but why don't you tell us what you do? Because that like you said, it dovetails very nicely into the topic at hand here. Yeah, well, I don't think it's uh, the hardest job in the world by any stretch. There's plenty of jobs I'm not cut out to do. But professionally, I work as uh, a paramedic, specifically an advanced care paramedic, and I work out of the greater Vancouver area. I've uh, been doing that for 12 years. And the responsibilities I have are to respond to the highest acuity of 911 calls and back up other paramedic crews when they call for help. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much what I do. And I'm supposed to be around a certain area, but we always end up having a huge coverage area and getting to see a huge, huge variety of different types of patients uh, from medicals to traumas and everything between. 
Yeah. So your job, like I said, it kind of terrifies me. I mean, I I know that especially in not just in your line of work, but in the specific vertical of your line of work, you know, you have to deal with some pretty difficult and pretty stressful situations. And that kind of ties into human factors and, and things that you've studied before, particularly around stress management and stress response. So correct me if I'm wrong, but this is an area that, that you've studied a bit and that you actually do a bit of teaching, correct? When it comes to helping other people in your role, learn how to respond respond to stressful situations properly? Yeah. As a disclaimer, I'm a subject matter enthusiast, not a subject matter expert, but I have developed with some other paramedics a non-technical skills training program where we train human factors like leadership, teamwork, situational awareness, decision-making, communication. And a huge part of that is teaching paramedics to manage and optimize our stress levels. So yeah, that's uh, that's part of what we do day to day, working with new paramedics that are going to be out on the street or teaching more experienced paramedics ways to sort of optimize and enhance their performance. And again, part of that, a huge part of it, it has to happen when we optimize stress. If we're not managing that well, then all of those other things we talked about, the teamwork, the leadership, the decision-making starts to come apart. So that's why it's such a big focus for us. Yeah. And this is a really interesting way to look at stress because I think everyone knows that, you know, stress is something that we all have to deal with and stress is, you know, it's not always a bad thing, but I think for many people, stress is just an inevitable fact of life from their perspective, just something that we all have to deal with. But what you're talking about here is providing people with tools to actually respond effectively in stressful situations, which again, very applicable to your line of work. So tell me about this. Talk to me about stress response and stress management and just stress in general. I mean, I, it's like base. It's a word that everyone talks about, like you've got to have base, <laughs> but no one ever actually really defines what it is. And so I'd love to get your definition of how do you define it and what is this kind of framework that you've put together around it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's kind of interesting. I wouldn't get to do what I do for fun or professionally without understanding that question and how to respond to it. I've always been drawn to those psychological aspects of sports. And a, a monumental part of that is curating an athlete or a paramedic's relationship to stress and building an armory of mental skills, particularly in controlling stress. So that's what I'd love to examine with you today. And it's it's funny, like jujitsu, our universal motto is about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that sounds a lot like stress management to me. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. So stress happens when demands are placed on the body and in turn, the body mounts a response. It could be something ordinary like exercise or challenges at work, an exam at school, illness, or something more extreme like being attacked. An infinite number of physical or mental demands can trigger stress. And there's different phases of it. Uh, there's early stages, we call it acute stress. And we can have longer term or chronic stress. But I think today we should mostly stick to talking about acute stress. So another interesting part about it is our body responds proportionately based on its appraisal of a stressor. So there could be a great deal of variation between different individuals. So we actually do these threat appraisals. So if we perceive something as threatening, as in some form of demand that outstrips our own beliefs about our capacity to answer it, the stress response is triggered. So if we feel we have the resources to address it, then we might approach it as more of a challenge and be less likely to be overwhelmed by it. And a demonstration of that might be, I could respond to a 911 call and have a much lower level of stress than my partner in the seat beside me who might find it exceptionally stressful or vice versa. So we can actually see how this would play out in a jujitsu context in a literal sense if we're faced with an opponent or position that we discern as beyond what we can manage, the stress dial just gets cranked. So think about the first time you were in side control, like you, you thought you were never getting out. <laughs> and, <laughs> and most people know that sensation as the fight or flight response. And that's something that well, a Harvard psychologist, Dr. Walter Cannon actually first described back in 1929. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a great example. I mean, like you said, jujitsu, one of the reasons why I think it's an effective tool for most people to at least try it once is because 
it allows you to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And side control is a great example of that. I mean, against a beginner, when you put a beginner in side control, they get terrified, they panic, they freak out, and usually they wind up burning their energy reserves really, really quickly. Yeah, exactly. But it's funny, once you get more experienced, it actually becomes oddly comfortable. Like, I, yeah. you know, if someone pins me in side control, even if they're giant, I've just been there so many times, it just doesn't bother me anymore. And I know what to do. Absolutely. And so I, I like that example of how stress can, you know, different factors can have different impacts on different people. Yeah, absolutely. So we have different pathways that are evoked when when stress happens. And it's actually like a, a really complex cascade of neurohormonal events that stems from two pathways, which arises from our hypothalamus. Let's distill that idea into something more palatable. So when we're faced with stress, our brain sounds an alarm. At the most basic form, it sounds an alarm and it mobilizes resources to answer that threat. It's as simple as that. So that pathway has two fundamental branches. One, where the sympathetic nervous system dumps out a bunch of epinephrine, aka go juice. And the second pathway, it terminates in cortisol release. There's some complexities to it, but that's the punchline. So together, those pathways culminate to bring about the physical manifestations of stress that we actually experience. Yeah, yeah. Makes a ton of sense from a scientific standpoint. And I mean, what's the the human experience, though? You know, when that when that happens to your body, what happens in your, you know, in your mind as you feel? How does that impact your behavior when you kind of go into that fight or flight response? Yeah, this is something we have to understand. And and once we start peeling back the layers, that lets us start to tackle how we fix this. So our body's physiologic response is when those neurotransmitters and hormones that we talked about at the end of the other two pathways, they get us ready to legitimately fight or run away from an evolutionary standpoint. That's what it's meant for. But nowadays, we can precipitate this with emotional encounters. So it's not just about physical demands. Either way, our body doesn't actually know the difference between emotional and physical threats, so it circles the wagons for battle, nevertheless. So the after effect of those two pathways is a bunch of signs and symptoms that we can feel and see in other folks. So increased heart rate, increased breathing rate, increase in blood pressure, a degradation of cognitive function. We're not able to reach our executive function that makes us humans when we're exceptionally stressed out. To get ready to fight, we need to have increased blood flow to our skeletal muscles, and we also start to have muscle tension. And Early on, we see fine motor skill reduction, but as that advances to higher levels of stress, we see a degradation in complex motor skills. Interesting. Let's translate that to jujitsu. So a coach can spot those signs. When we see an athlete that's playing tense, it's often about stress. Like even in a sport you don't know, you can see who's stressed on the field and who's not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, even a sport that you haven't done yourself, you can observe this. I mean, I've never trained MMA, but you watch an MMA fight and often you can tell if one person is getting visibly frustrated, if they're falling behind, if they're yeah. tensing up, if they're making mistakes. And in jujitsu, when you're training with someone, especially as you get more advanced, you can feel it, right? That's one of my favorite things about sparring with white belts is you can feel how tense and stressed out they are the whole time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, completely. But to bring, let's, let's talk about that stiffness and tension when we're not using them to achieve a goal on the mats. That's wasted energy. So if you're in mount and, and you're too stiff, it's easier for our opponent to bridge us out compared to when we're loose and we're burning calories against something that's not achieving our ultimate goal. So when we see those new folks compete, just like you said, the white belts, you see that stiffness, that nervous energy, and that's the end byproduct of a stress response, and that's inefficient use of energy. So in climbing, we would see athletes overgripping as a response to, to fear of falling and heightened stress. And funny enough, it actually burns them out faster, making that fear of falling materialize. Yeah, it's crazy. We also see things like decreased blood flow to our digestive system. Some people feel this as those nervous butterflies, but in extremis, you can vomit due to nervousness because of that decrease in blood flow. Our other sensory organs are inhibited as well, vision and hearing. So when our bodies are preparing to fight, 
we're trying to fight the target that's directly in front of us, that threat that's right there. So I don't need to see to the horizon. So I just need to see the threat. So in that time, our vision needs to be myopic or nearsighted. So we lock in on that target and we lose sight of the big picture and we can lose situational awareness. Yeah, absolutely. All of this, again, it sounds very familiar to my experience of sparring with white belts because you see them do that too, right? You see them kind of get the monkey in the cookie or with the hand in the cookie jar thing <laughs> going on where they see one thing and they're so focused on it and they're they're just going all in. It's funny because as I train and as I as talk to more black belts from around the world, one of the things that I've started to come around to is maybe for our day one beginners, we shouldn't focus on okay, what is the guard? What is an arm bar? All of this stuff. Maybe for the first while, what we should focus people on is how do you control your stress response? You know, practice your breathing in difficult situations, practice staying loose. I sort of wish someone had taught me that stuff when I was starting out versus just throwing me in the shark tank. Yeah, completely. It's incredible. And, and you know, exactly what you described where people lock on one thing or when they stop seeing other options to get out, that's heightened stress. That's that cognitive decline that we have. You know, we have auditory exclusion can also happen because if I'm going to fight a bear, I don't need to hear what's going on. I just need to mobilize my defenses. We call that actually auditory exclusion. So we might see that where a coach is yelling instructions and the athlete just can't hear any of it. That's really interesting. And I love the example you brought up too about how, look, stress can be something that just basically is created in your own head. You know, most of us are, are not in life or death situations on a day-to-day basis. You perhaps excluded, but I'm certainly <laughs> not, right? But, you know, even if you live a, a relatively comfortable, sheltered life, your your body and your brain can turn very basic situations into something very stressful. It's, it's almost like the body wants to do that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I remember I've had, I remember one time when I was younger, I actually was so stressed at work that I passed out and like, you know, no one hit me or anything. It was just, I was carrying so much stress from a desk job that I actually lost consciousness. I didn't know that could happen, but you know, it, it can. And I certainly wasn't being chased by saber tooth tigers. I wasn't having to, you know, defend myself in the streets. This was just a very, very mundane experience, but because I was really young and inexperienced, I, I was overly stressed about something that I probably shouldn't have been. Yeah, completely. It's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. That's a huge part of this discussion is some self-reflection on, you know what, we've just listed a whole bunch of signs and symptoms of stress, but it's very unique to each of us. You know, what are our manifestations of stress? What are the early warning signs for our own stress? What are our personal triggers and how can we understand that? You know, that's critical to starting to unpack this question. And remember again, that stress doesn't leave us. We're talking about your total stress burden, It's not just the stress you're feeling on the mats or at work. People carry stress with them from all facets of their lives. So work stress or relationship stress, it doesn't just get put aside when we partake in sports and, and, you know, like take a knee. Like athletes carry the burden of their total stressors with them. So our approaches to stress reduction need to be holistic and broach all sources of increased demand. Well, let me ask you here, because we've talked about stress in a very negative light so far, but I mean, we know that stress isn't all bad, right? Stress is ultimately something that can motivate us, push us outside of our comfort zone, let us do great things. But like with anything, it's a polarity, right? It can be good. It can be bad. It depends on how you deal with it. Is stress always bad or are there situations where it can actually be beneficial? And how do you harness that? That's a fantastic question. Stress gets a bad rap and it can have some pretty negative effects, but it can also have really positive ones as well. Like the godfather of stress research, Hans Selye, he once said, the absence of stress is death and that only the dead have no stress. So for our entire existence, our sympathetic nervous system, our proverbial gas pedals, that's entwined with a balancing act with our parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the brakes, right? So these are what enact our fight, flight, or freeze systems and our rest and digest functions, that gas pedal and the brake pedal. But they have to always be in balance. So the sympathetic nervous system, that gas pedal, you know, when it releases epinephrine, when I decide to go for a jog, that's what lets me take care of that. 
And it helps me respond to the increased demand that I place on my body. And there's been research into what are the optimal levels of stress compared to performance. Some researchers, Yerkes and Dodson, they did research on mice where they examined mice under varied levels of stress and a gradient from low, moderate to high levels of stress. And they looked at them performing both simple and complex tasks. And their research, it culminated in the development of something called the performance arousal curve. So that's a, a visual representation. It's Think about it as like a, an inverted U-shape graph. So it looks like a sort of a, a regular standard deviation. And that's a visual representation of the exact question you're asking. So how can stress lead to increased performance and what circumstances does that happen in? So the answer is that at low levels of arousal or stress, performance is low. And that makes a lot of sense. If we're bored, we're inactive, we have low arousal, it's more that parasympathetic system the brakes are on, we're not all that motivated or focused. But as that starts to increase, we start to actually ramp things up and, and performance can start to happen because we start to dial things in. And that's where that motivation and focus start to come is, is coupled with increased stress. So what all this means to me is that if we start to reframe our perception of stress towards the benefits of increased arousal, we stand to gain a lot from it. So the apex of the curve that we're talking about, of the performance arousal curve, that's not zero stress. That's with a moderate amount of stress where we start to perform at an optimal level. So from that point onward, we have a reduction in performance. And as a result, that starts to, we see that as anxiety and breakdown. So what that means to me is that stress is like a wave. If you hit it in the right spot, you can use it to propel you forward. But if we let it build up too much, then it swallows us whole. So if we got to learn to ride that stress wave just right. I love that idea of like surfing the stress wave and what you're talking about here, kind of managing your relationship with stress and staying at just that optimal angle. Interestingly, this is something that I've heard variations of this in so many different walks of life in different uh, areas. So we recently had uh, Dr. Rob Gray on the podcast from Arizona University, and you know, he's the guy who runs the Perception in Action podcast, and he was talking about what, what he kind of calls tentatively the 70% rule, and the idea being that you know when you're pushing people, you want them to be able to kind of succeed roughly around 70% of the time, but there has to be a percentage of the time where things fail and things don't go as expected. Otherwise, you just kind of go on to autopilot and you don't learn. But on the flip side, if there's too much stress, then your whole brain shuts down, you get demotivated. I mean, as the, the father of a five-year-old, I see this a lot with my kid, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, on one hand, I don't like to see her suffer, but I know that to some extent she has to lose some of the time, right? If I play games with her and I just let her win all of the time, it doesn't help her grow. It doesn't set a realistic response. It doesn't teach her anything. But on the other hand, if I just smash her every time we play a game, she's going to get frustrated and she's going to give up. And so as a dad, I'm always kind of trying to walk this line where I give her positive reinforcement so she feels good and she feels like she's progressing and she she's interested. But I also have to challenge her at, at strategic times to make sure she knows winning is not guaranteed, right? Stress is a part of life and you have to deal with it. Yeah. And interestingly, this is something that isn't even just applicable to human beings. I mean, this is very preliminary. Mm-hmm. But there is some research that's being done on artificial intelligence. And at the last I saw, there's there's a zone of proximal development for artificial intelligence, just like it is for people. And the, the last data that I saw on this is that if you want to train an AI to be most effective, it needs to succeed roughly 80% of the time and fail roughly 20% of the time. If it fails too much or it succeeds too much, it doesn't learn as effectively. And so it's just weird that this kind of stress balancing act seems to be uh, just kind of like a, almost like a fact of life that's much beyond just being a human being. Even computers seem to respond to it as well. Wow, amazing. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really applicable a across such a broad, a broad field. It's amazing. And like you said, it's not just about... You know, jujitsu athletes, this is, you know, things we can take into our professional and personal lives as well. So I think people from all walks of life really stand to benefit from 
from this discussion. Well, let's talk about how you do that then. I mean, I'm positive that everyone who's listening to this has some stress in their life they wish they could deal with. It's going to come from various sources, right? Some people might be burned out. They might have injuries. They might have competition anxiety. I don't know, gym drama, maybe something else (laughs) on the job. It is inevitable, right, that everyone's going to face this. And I'm sure everyone wants a playbook for how to, to deal with it. So, you know, you talked about riding that wave like a surfer and kind of hitting the stress at just the right angle so that it, it, it's optimized and it can be helpful and not detrimental. But man, how do you do that? Like, what are the tactics and the techniques that you can employ to make such a thing happen? Because I'm, I'm sure it's easier said than done, but I'd love to hear the playbook. Yeah, it's definitely easier said than done. And it's something I still work towards every day. But these are skills and techniques that I actually use. But to start off, we have to acknowledge that there is a need to train these mental facets of our sport and these mental skills, because we often focus our training efforts entirely on technical skills development and on building those physical attributes through strength and conditioning, when in fact, all sports have psychological components. And at the highest levels of competition, mental capabilities of of a competitor may distinguish bronze, silver, and gold when the technical and physical characteristics are equal. So these skills, they aid us in maintaining focus, composure, and they determine our ability to overcome adversity or crumble under its weight. So yeah, it's it's crazy that it's such a infrequently trained area. And I understand there's time constraints and, and things like that, but I've always wondered, you know, what people's aversion is to to training this, whether it's a, a perceived that it's more of a soft skill or what have you. But I can assure you that the best of the best, whether it be Olympians or special forces operators, they're dedicating training time to this, period. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just spoke to Amy Campo about that. You know, she just uh, took the the gold medal at ADCC this year. And when she was on the podcast, she specifically mentioned exactly what you said. And she talked about how she believes that at, at her level, technique and being good at jujitsu really isn't a competitive advantage because at the highest level, everyone's great at jujitsu, right? It's, you know, you're not likely to encounter some giant weakness when you're in a a finals match at ADCC. (laughs) And she said that she felt like the differentiating factor was for her was mindset, self-belief, the mental game and how, you know, how she fought that. And you're right that most gyms, they just don't teach this stuff or train this stuff. You know, you go in there and they'll teach you arm bars and techniques and tactics, but you don't get a lot of coaches who sit down and actually talk about mindset and how you can just be more resilient as a person. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And yeah, we see this not just in jiu-jitsu, but at the top levels of of sport and high-risk industries as well. Military, surgeons, pilots, all kinds of people train in these things because exactly that at the upper echelons, uh, our ability to use mentals and use and deploy mental skills is what sets us apart. You know, earlier we mentioned that in jiu-jitsu we boast about our ability to sustain being uncomfortable. Well, that has to extend off the mats. You know, we have to be able to step outside of our comfort zone and try things like mindfulness or relaxation techniques. You know, we can't just drop our motto about being comfortable being uncomfortable because it feels too out there. You know, we got to push ourselves out of that comfort zone in all elements of training. So let's actually talk about some specific techniques, you know, because we're speaking in generalities, but I, I would love for people to have actionable items to move forward with. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some things you brought up, I mean, you talked about mindfulness and this is something that, man, I remember when I first discovered mindfulness and I thought, ah, this is a bunch of woo-woo hippie bullshit, right? (laughs) Me too, man. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. Then you look into it and you realize, okay, maybe there is that element of the mindfulness community who is very woo-woo, but like there is a lot of emerging research that is actually showing, no, there there is something to this, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. The the practice of being able to pull your attention into the, the present moment and kind of like compartmentalize your mind. This is something that is a very hot an emerging area of science and it's starting to look like there's really something there. Oh yeah. Yeah. And most competitors will anecdotally tell you about the importance of this as part of their, their mindset regiment as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. So exactly what you're describing. And I used to be a complete disbeliever and I looked down on it. And, you know, a couple of days back, I was standing in front of a classroom of paramedics talking about how I use mindfulness to, to help deal with my stress. So I think that definitely warrants talking about. And you're 100% correct. There is some pretty strong and compelling evidence that we'll talk about in a second here. So first, let's let's say what it is. It's It's a very broad field, but to me, it's about being focused on the present moment. We take in everything that's going on, our thoughts, our feelings, those physical sensations, and we acknowledge them without taking them on or ruminating, and it curtails overthinking. So it lets us be fully present in the moment and helps us develop better self-awareness. There's a bunch of ways you can do this. There's no one right way. You could just sit in silence and take it in. Think about those thoughts and sensations that you're feeling. Notice the texture of the fabric on your clothing, the ambient temperature in the room. Notice those emotions and thoughts and let them pass by. Some people listen to nature sounds or music while they do it. Some people guided mindfulness techniques where somebody kind of talks them through and points them in the right direction. Some people use this time to just focus and be present and mindful of their breathing. But others can do it while they're walking. There's like walking mindfulness where you go into an outdoor space. I really like this one, you know, taking a walk by a stream or sitting by a lake and, and practicing mindfulness there. Other people will do things like body scans to notice areas of tension. So there's no right way to do it. There's thousands of free mindfulness videos online, all different lengths. You can go from two minutes to hours and hours. So find something that works for you and give it a try. It's shockingly powerful. It's not going to make you feel different after the first time you do it. But as you start to do this, it really does build up. Yeah, you know, we talked about mindfulness very, very early on in the early days of this podcast, which was, I can't believe it, that was like four years ago. Crazy. And, and we talked about that in one of the first 10 episodes, I think, because it to me, it is such an important skill to develop, but we kind of haven't brought it up for a while. So I'm glad we're doing a refresher. I love that you brought up that mindfulness, there's not a right way or a wrong way to do it. I think when a lot of people hear about this, they think that it means they've got to, you know, move to India and burn some incense <laughs> and like meditate for three hours without speaking. It doesn't have to be anything like Wait, that. Wait, that's not what you're doing? That's what I'm doing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I, I mean, the point is it doesn't have to be anything quite that intense, right? You don't have to meditate if you don't like to. It, it's really just about drawing your attention to the present moment. And, you know, you don't have to follow some prescribed practice. You can come up with really whatever works for you. It doesn't have to be some formal meditation. It can be as simple as just slowing down for a bit, you know, looking out the window and just enjoying the scenery and just enjoying the present moment, focusing on your breathing, things like that. Like you said, kind of immersing yourself in sensory experiences, like the feeling of your clothing. And I mean, all of this sounds uh, probably a little bit ephemeral to a lot of people, <laughs> but you know, you brought up how there's a lot of, of products and, and apps that can kind of guide you through this. Tons. The, my favorite one that I've used was Headspace. Have you ever used that? I have lots of folks really enjoy that app. There's tons of free ones online as well. So just find something that works for you and go for it. For me, one of the, my favorite very simple mindfulness practices is just taking a drink of really cold water. I know it sounds so ridiculous, but I keep lots of ice in my water bottle at work and I just take a 10, 15 second pause to just be present in that moment and feel the sensation of the cold water and, and focus on that and just let all my other thoughts and feelings just kind of pass. And it's a wonderful way to just punch the reset button and just take a second to yourself. Well, that's something that I think is, was a hugely valuable lesson to me to learn, which was that mindfulness is not about necessarily stopping your thoughts. I think when people are overwhelmed by stress and by by intrusive thoughts and just, just repeating thoughts, often they just want it to stop, right? Mm -hmm. And so when people think about, oh, I don't want to be stressed anymore. I want to practice mindfulness. Maybe what they think that means is I want to stop all of this negative chatter in my mind. But the one lesson for me that was a hugely valuable lesson was understanding that that is not possible, right? And that is not the goal of mindfulness. It is not to stop 
the thoughts in your mind, right? Your brain is an organ. You can't stop it from doing its thing, much like how you can't stop your heart from beating. It's going to do its thing. The goal of mindfulness is to put some distance between yourself and your thoughts and almost kind of like observe them from a third person perspective. You talked about this, how about how it's like you're trying to basically let your thoughts pass by. Like, you know, I talked about Headspace earlier. I saw a great video from them. And if I can find it, maybe I'll put it in the show notes. But they explained the practice as being like, look, if you want to stop negative thinking, right? Think of it like if you see a bunch of cars moving down the street, you would not try to stop the cars by jumping in traffic and getting in the way, right? That's not (laughs) going to make things better. But what it proposes you do is you kind of sit beside the road and just let the cars go by, right? Rather than trying to feel like you have to get inside and get involved and and change the thoughts from happening. It's more about coming to terms with the fact that, okay, look, your your brain is going to do its thing. Just put a bit of space between you and those chattering thoughts in your head and not try to fight them, right? I I think that's a, a problem that a lot of people have is they try to fight stress and fight repetitive thinking. But from my experience, it's been much more helpful to just kind of take that deep breath and just focus your attention on something else and just let the brain do its thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a perfect description. Yeah, I struggled with that a lot when I started mindfulness. I was just trying to wrestle them out of my head. And then I was thinking about wrestling them out of my head. And it was, <laughs> it was not great. But yeah, honestly, that's that's perfect. There's find an app, find what works for you. There's so many benefits to stress reduction. And it's been proven in countless studies. And results substantiate that it can have physical changes in your body. So when we talked about the stress pathways ending in cortisol, mindfulness can lower cortisol levels. It can lower the heart rate and heart rate variability. It can lower blood pressure. Other research actually showed that mindfulness-based cognitive therapy compared to the effects of antidepressants are similar when treating anxiety. Like that's huge. That's as good as a medication. It's unbelievable. There was a couple other studies that actually did MRIs and and looked at brain structure of people that did 30 minutes of mindfulness daily. And this was one of the most absolutely mind-blowing things to me was that it reduced the gray matter in the areas of the brain that manage threat detection and stress. So the amygdala actually had less gray matter. And there was increased gray matter in other areas, like areas that control empathy and things like that. So it's like you're you're changing the physical layout of your brain when you're engaging in a a thought exercise. It's just I it's amazing. It really is. And I mean, it almost kind of sounds like voodoo, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. You you wouldn't think that that a mindfulness practice would actually alter the, the structure of your brain, but here we are. Yeah. It's unreal. Some other things that can have, you know, equally profound changes in stress are another simple action that I really like to do. And I used to do this a lot with my climbing athletes was progressive muscle relaxation. I would use this with climbers before competition. And I still use this when I, you know, when I'm between calls or at work, or if I'm at home, I'm just getting home and I'm feeling stress. I find it works exceptionally well for me and it can be done in a really short period of time. So what it is, is a stepwise contraction and relaxation of major muscle groups. So I usually start with the feet and the calves and I just clench them as hard as possible for anywhere from five to 15 seconds. Then I relax them and you just feel this crazy difference in the sensation and you become very aware of that muscle group and it develops this sort of warm feeling. So after I relax and I continue to move upwards, contracting all the other major muscle groups. So quads, then I'll relax those and move to the glutes and the hamstrings, relax that moving into the core, then follow that with the chest, the back, and then arms. And then I clench the face and I relax. And when you're done that, you just feel almost like you're glowing, like you have this incredible awareness of of your body and where, you know, tension was before. I find it usually kind of melts away. And so it's really good at actively resolving tension and stress, but it also helps me be more physically aware 
of the early warning signs when that muscle tension and stiffness is starting to creep up insidiously. Yeah, yeah. And same with mindfulness, there's been really positive results. There's a study in 2012 by Dolbier and Rush, and they used progressive muscle relaxation in college students with super high stress. And they reduced their levels, their, not only their subjective levels of anxiety, but the physiologic markers of stress. So lower heart rate, heart rate variability, lower blood pressure, and even changes to cortisol levels. It's a pretty powerful tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another thing that that's kind of closely related, and you touched on this earlier, is breath work. You know, managing how you breathe and using that as a relaxation vehicle. But I'd love to know your thoughts on this, how you do this, and also if there's any science behind that, whether that has the same kind of profound impacts as the other things we talked about. Yeah, well, so so breathing is is cool. Uh, you know, some people talk about like biohacking. You know, this is how we could kind of trick our nervous systems into doing different things. So breathing is controlled voluntarily, and it is also controlled involuntarily by the autonomic nervous system. And that's the system that controls parasympathetic and sympathetic. That's the gas pedals and the brakes, all right? So by using our voluntary control over an involuntary system, we can slow it down and trick the body into hitting the brakes. So when we're stressed and we start breathing, that increased breathing rate, increased heart rate, we can actually control our respiratory rate. We can't control our heart rate directly, but we can do that indirectly. So we can hack the system and slow things down. So including that heart rate and the other physical manifestations of stress. Now, I can't speak to whether it lowers cortisol levels as well or not, but there's been lots of really good studies specifically in athletes, patients, and other like high stress agencies, like medical practitioners and things like that. So when we notice that we're creeping up to the wrong side of that stress wave, we can dial it back by slowing our breathing down and using that to activate the brakes and to trigger the parasympathetic response. So some people advocate for box breathing. Some people call that tactical breathing. Personally, I really recommend whatever you do, just focus on prolonging your exhalation phase. There's something called a 15-second breath. So it's 15 seconds in total. So it's not a lot of time. We're not talking about, like you said, meditating on a cushion for for two hours is like Mm -hmm. under a minute of your time. So in the heat of the moment, we can just sit there and chill out. So a person will breathe in for five seconds, hold for two, and then exhale for eight seconds. So if you don't Remember anything else, just breathe out longer. And this gives us a longer time to stimulate that parasympathetic system to hit the brakes. We have a big nerve called the vagus nerve in our chest that changes with intrathoracic pressures and other things. And we can stimulate that by prolonging that exhalation phase and slowing things down. We can slow that heart rate down. And a Bonus uh, bonus point is while you're focusing on breathing, if you focus on relaxing the muscles in your neck and shoulder and jaw as you exhale, you can combat the muscle tension and the breathing at the same time. So I really like it. This is something I use during calls. I can do this, you know, while I'm doing a task. Like this is something I can do while I'm doing jujitsu or while I'm doing a medical procedure. And that's pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you you touched on how in jujitsu, this can be a game changer. I mean, I think one of the main differences, but you can feel, for example, when you're sparring with a white belt versus a black belt, because <laughs> the white belt, you can tell the breathing is out of whack because the person is oh, yeah. super stressed. They don't know what they're doing. And odds are they don't know how to control their breathing properly. Yeah. Whereas at some point in your journey to black belt, you're going to be told by someone that, hey, you've got to work on your breath. You've got to control the breathing. And there's good reasons for it. It increases your performance. And if you do it enough, if you focus on breath work enough, you can get to the point where it becomes an ingrained habit. And at that point, if you can breathe well all of the time, then it can dramatically improve the quality of your life. Yeah. An example I can I can give that's sort of related. I heard an old story. I think it was about Hoist Gracie. I don't remember who, but basically that this this instructor told his students, look, whenever you get off the ground, doesn't matter if we're talking about jujitsu or getting off the couch or getting out of bed, but whenever you get off the ground, do a technical standup. Why? Because <laughs> the goal of, of the technical standup is not to make you better at jujitsu necessarily. It's to train that response into your body 
So it always happens, right? Even in like a self-defense situation, if you've got to get up safely, your body just does it automatically without you even having to think about it. And I think of breathwork practice as being very similar because if you practice this enough, eventually you develop an awareness of your breathing and when it's out of whack and with enough practice, you can build a habit where you just breathe well and you breathe relaxed all the time. And that has like a waterfall effect, like you said, on your stress level. Yeah. And and all of these techniques, they're intertwined. Mindfulness boosts our awareness and same with, you know, progressive muscle relaxation and breath work. So we can kind of use all of them as sensors to start detect when this is um, starting to get out of whack and use any of those techniques to start to dial it back into that optimal range so that we can obtain peak performance. Mm-hmm. Now, let, let me ask another question. For people who are dealing with repetitive or, or negative thoughts, right? And I think this is very, very common. I mean, especially in, in this day and age, I think a lot of us are probably carrying a lot of negative baggage. Maybe we've got negative self-chatter about ourselves, and that can be a massive driver for stress. But when it comes to negative perceptions, like maybe you just, you don't believe in yourself, you're, you're thinking badly about yourself, what kind of tactics can you use to reframe or, or change your thinking to make that more productive? Because of course, dwelling on the negative is never productive, right? So I'd love to know if there's any any tactics that you use to reframe and change the way that you think. Completely. How we think about stress, our relationship with stress, we have to curate that. That changes how stress affects us. So when we can reframe it to, to acknowledge that not all stress is bad, and that that's the thing that helps us you know, helps propel us forward, you know, we can start to to shift. So when we encounter a perceived threat, we have that lightning fast threat appraisal. And we actually appraise our ability to deal with the threat. So do we file that away as a threat or a challenge? And this often relates to the stories that we tell ourselves about stress and our ability or inability to overcome it. And that can lead to unmitigated stress and become a really unfortunate self-fulfilling prophecy. So does the grappler at the tournament see a threat or an opportunity when they step on the mats? Dr. Jim Aframo wrote about this idea in his book, The Champion's Mind. He described that if an athlete views a competition as an impending disaster, they drive up the level of pressure and stress that they feel. So this translates into how we reframe things. So what we have to shift how we talk to ourselves into a more positive way. We can take active control of this. This is voluntary. As much as we've habituated negative thoughts frequently, we can start to shift those. So what we say to ourselves, our thoughts, they shape our emotions and in turn that alters our behaviors. That's the theoretical underpinning for how cognitive behavioral therapy works. A person shifts their thoughts and can have a cascading effect on their emotions and ultimate behavior patterns. We actually have sort of around 60 to 80,000 thoughts per day, and a vast majority of those are negative. And that makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. You know, we have to keep ourselves safe by scanning for threats, but it doesn't always serve us well in present times. So a powerful stress management tactic comes when we become more mindful of those negative thought patterns and train ourselves to replace them with positive scripted statements to build more positive emotions and then behaviors. So we can uncover that by asking ourselves, or if we're a coach, asking our athletes what they say to themselves when they make mistakes. And I have to say, our first words to ourselves off the cuff are often pretty harsh, you know, sit down and and write out some countermeasures to that. So some positive scripted statements for when we experience a negative thought. Yeah. And and this is actually where coaching can have a a great impact, right? Because a lot of the the positive and and negative patterns that you pick up are going to be cues that you take from your coach. If you've got a coach who's constantly yelling at you and screaming at you, that is going to change the way you think. But if you've got a coach who encourages you and gets you excited about the challenges that you're facing, then that's going to give you a very different perspective when you go into a, a high stress environment like a competition. Yeah, that's emotional contagion in a bottle. We mimic our environments. We have to do that to to fit in with our tribes or we're going to be excommunicated and on our own. That's a that's a huge threat way back when. But, you know, now 
when we surround ourselves with people, that influences us. And it, it's it's very contagious. So what's the attitude of those people around you? Is it positively contributing or is it negatively? That's an awesome question. Yeah. So aside from sitting down and writing those scripted statements, sometimes people have a hard time with it. We're a lot nicer to other people than we are to ourselves. So if you're having a hard yeah. time coming up with a phrase, then, then put yourself in a coach's shoes. What would you say to another athlete in a similar situation? Because usually we're way more forgiving with somebody else than we are with ourselves. So I find it's a lot easier to think about it as giving someone advice. So make it short, make it simple. Some people seem to say in the literature to use you statements over I statements. I haven't really looked into why, but just something really simple, like you got this or relax, move forward. My personal script is just here and now. I tend to be somebody that thinks about, that thinks ahead or thinks behind based on things that have happened. And so here and now reminds me to be present and stay in the moment. That's like the idea of play where your feet are in sports. Don't be thinking about the fumble that you made or, you know, the point that just got scored on you, you know, play where you are now. So that, that I find really helps me. Yeah. That's fantastic advice. And I love that you brought up emotional contagion because this is something that I think a lot of people don't put sufficient thought into. You know, you can do your absolute level best to curate and build a positive mindset and self-image and to be mindful but if you're surrounded by a bunch of people who are ultimately being negative influences, either on purpose or by accident, that has a contagious effect on you. We, we take cues from the people around us. I mean, I've, I've had environments with team dynamics at work where, you know, you get one person who's just a really negative person and suddenly everything sucks and everything's toxic and everyone hates the job, but that person quits. And then the next day, everything is great again. <laughs> like all it takes <laughs> is one negative person to screw up a whole team. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, emotional contagion is huge. And and think about the environment that you're putting yourself in. And maybe it's time to upgrade that if it's not working out for you. And maybe it's time to upgrade your, your self-talk if that's not working out for you either. It's important to recognize that your neural pathways, what you use is your default. So if you maintain those negative thoughts, that's that becomes your default. And it takes effort to retrain your thoughts to be more positive. Yeah, so that's really, it does take an effort. So if we're not actually actively working towards this, then we're going back to our default settings, which as we already talked about, is typically quite negative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, a big part of all of this, you know, we've given people a bunch of tools here for managing stress, but it's one thing to have a tool. It's another thing to repeatedly use it, right? And I, <laughs> this is a challenge that I have a lot too. I mean, I'm sure that everyone does where I'll read a book or something and there will be some amazing idea and I'll think, that's a great idea. I bet that would change my life if I did that. And I do it like once, maybe twice. And then I forget and I move on to something else. And so that's just lost knowledge. I was really lucky actually that I, I did take the time to actually train mindfulness. It takes a lot of work, right? You got to really keep committed to it. To a big extent, we're talking about, you know, building positive habits. All of these things that you talked about, they're only going to happen if you actually put a habit practice in place. Yeah. So like if we were to actually do that, if we were to take all of these tools and help people put it in practice starting today, what are some things that people could do to be actionable and make all of these things part of their regular life? You kind of need to map out where this fits. You know, we've presented some of the many tools that are available, but you also need to map out where this actually fits. Like if you learn a jujitsu move, but you don't know when that move is supposed to be executed, it's not very valuable. So actually sitting down and, and figuring out where this happens. And I actually do this with paramedics. Like I give them these tools, we discuss it, and then we do a fictitious call, a simulated event, and, and they have to, to map out which stress management techniques they will apply where, you know, whether it's an individual technique or ways to try to de-escalate patients or team members, we have to have an idea of where it fits in. So maybe filing it into before, during, or after competition. But another thing is, you know, skills acquisition, and this is a skill, make no mistake, this is about skills acquisition. And that's about experimenting and working things out in a low affective environment. So we have to have low levels of stress or consequences to start to 
develop these skills, we slowly start to build up with higher and higher levels of stress and resistance. And that's how we start to, to build and strengthen a skill. It's like when you learn a new technique, you drill the basic steps with virtually no resistance and you start to build up intensity. And eventually we can land it when we're sparring or in competition. It's the same with mental skills. So you got to do it in a low stakes environment and start to habituate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I love this idea of kind of deliberately inflicting stress on people to train them. That's <laughs> that's actually a very valid tactic, right? I oh, mean, yeah. in, in competition, people do this a lot where they will deliberately try to stress and fluster their opponent so that they don't perform optimally. I mean, I've, I've sparred with jujitsu guys who kind of take like a self-defense aspect to things and they'll do things like repeatedly kind of palm you in the face <laughs> and, and stuff like that. If you're not used to it, it screws you up, right? And it, it flusters you and it stresses you and you don't perform to to your optimal capability. Josh Waitzkin has talked about this in his books. Um, you know, when he would be in like high level chess competitions, his opponents would do annoying stuff, like try to kick him under the table just to throw him <laughs> off. And if, if you're easily flustered like that, then, you know, it doesn't matter if you're on paper, the best performer in the world, if you can easily be taken out of that flow state and, and put into a stress state where you can't perform well, you got a problem. So that yeah. that is, uh, it's both a tool that you as a competitor can use to perform better yourself, but it's also a strategy that you can use to screw with your opponent sometimes as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well think about it like that, that triad of, of clinical, of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, influencing those thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And all of those, you know, behaviors can be manipulated and stress shows as body language. So stress will manifest as poor body language on the mats. So that's something that communicates a strong message to your opponent. Like think about it, poor body language could lead, like if I was, you know, rolling with somebody and they started to have like poor body language that was showing that they were like giving up or withdrawing, man, I might start blitzing them. You know, it's like blood's in the water. You got to start dialing it, right? So we got to manage our body language. So if we can actually influence our thoughts based on our behaviors so we can choose how we behave. There's a a study on, uh, there's been a couple studies on this, but people that take like a hero pose briefly and they stood in this power pose and it led to more positive self-perception. So changing behavior, change thoughts, and that influences emotions. So we need to start adapting a more powerful or positive body language while we're on the mats because that communicates something to your partner. Make no mistake. Yeah, yeah. You've talked a few times about cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, one of my favorite lessons that I've kind of pulled out of the the psych field here is this this idea of reflecting as if, right? Mm. Um, Basically, the, the idea that most of us think that our brain is like the the driver and our body is the car and our brain tells the body what to do, but that's actually not entirely true. It's very much a two-way street. Your brain is just an organ, a very special organ, but it's just an organ in your body. And much like how your brain can control the body, the body can also control the brain. And I mean, there's research showing, for example, that if people force themselves to smile, it actually makes you happier. You know, it's very much fake it until you make it. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact same thing. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much fake it until you make it. And that might feel disingenuous to people, but there is emerging science behind this. And Cognitive behavioral therapy is a big part of this, where you can put in place a practice to kind of create the habits that the ideal version of yourself would do, basically fake it till you make it. And then that actually can change your mindset over time. So it it's an interesting lesson that the brain does not always control the body, but sometimes the body controls the brain as well. Yeah, that was a game changer for me. Honestly, when I started to, to really, truly learn the power of that triad of thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, it it really started to change things for me. Fantastic. Well, Sheena, we talked about quite a bit here. Any other closing thoughts or things you wanted to cover before we tie this up? Yeah, really quickly. Sometimes it can be hard to broach some of these subjects. And something that's always helped me as a more analytical person is to take an analytical approach. I find that when I quantify things, it can be really revealing and a lot more compelling than uh, just subjective things. So like, for example, in my jujitsu, I review at least once a year, all the major like positions, guards, 
submissions and like passes and stuff. And I put a number value based on my perceived ability in that area and I score it. So, and I, I take a look at the lowest scores and sometimes it's really surprising and I start to work on those areas. And, and so that's something we can do with mental skills as well. There's plenty of free online mental skills assessment tools, but we got to quantify it because that's where we start to actually understand where we need to work on mental skills because stress management, that's that's one of them. But there's also focus, self-talk, body language, visualization, confidence, composure, goal setting, and so much more. So if we just make a little list out of mental skills or use a prefabricated assessment tool, and give yourself a number, you know, one to five or one to 10, whatever you want, pick those things that are lower numbers and start to make an action plan. You know, so that's how we start to build those strong habits. So we actually have to really like schedule that in there. So my wish is that this discussion is going to give you a launching point to start to optimize stress and give you specific approaches to sharpen those mental skills, the ones we talked about on our analytical list there. So I hope you can get out there and embrace being uncomfortable, not just on the mats, but figuring it out off the mats as well. Try something new. It'll pay dividends. And I truly hope that our conversation today is able to help you learn to ride that stress wave so you can use it as a performance driver to propel your game forward. And I just wanted to say, Steve, like, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's been really fun talking to you today. Oh, no worries, Sheena. I've been looking forward to this one. It was an awesome chat. But hey, before we let you go, if people want to get in contact with you, ask you questions, how do they go about doing that? I'm available on social media, um, Sheena Osborne. I'm on Instagram, Facebook as well. So feel free to reach out or ask any questions at any time. I'm really happy to, to help out with any questions you might have. Awesome. And I'll put those links in the show notes as always. So if anyone wants to quickly shoot uh, Sheena a DM, just pop into the show notes and there you go. Another thing I'll throw into the show notes is a link to BJJ Mental Models Premium. I know I talk about this all the time, but the public podcast that we do here is sort of just the tip of the iceberg. We do a lot more detailed kind of masterclass style discussion on the premium service. So do recommend you check it out. We also have a whole bunch of high level black belts that'll review your rolling footage and give you super detailed feedback. Everyone says that it's a total game game changer who's tried it there's hundreds of people who already are on there and i'd love to have you on there too there's a seven day free trial so please check it out that's bjjmentalmodels.com if you're interested and of course i'll also put the link in the show notes as well so thanks again to everyone who supports us there and sheena thanks so much for for coming by i look forward to getting back on the mat and getting tapped out by you from turtle again like always (laughs) you're the reason why i'm half decent at opening the turtle <laughs> You're like the oh, you and that freaking wrestler guy that we train with are like the only two people who can break down my turtle consistently. It kills me. That's awesome. Oh man. Well, thank you so much, Sheena. And of course, to everyone listening, thank you as well. I do sincerely appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care. <laughs>